Today we're going to be studying about the Antichrist, that one figure in human history where it causes fear in people's hearts. So before we're actually going to study him, let's read what Daniel saw about Jesus Christ, because that gives us hope. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that being the Father, and they, the angels, brought him near before him. Then to him, that's Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Amen? Amen. Father, again, we thank you that though, though this world will go through many difficulties, that we will be rescued from even the greatest of the difficulties, and that being the tribulation. But we also thank you, more importantly, that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ will come. He will make war against all those who are against him, and he will be victorious. Father, again, we thank you for that as far as in the physical realm. More importantly, we thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth that he died on the cross for us, and as we have put our faith and trust in him, that he's given us victory, victory over sin, victory over death, victory over Satan. And so, Lord, as we look at this troubling figure of history and also in the future of Antichrist, I pray that you give us hope, that we'd keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and not on trying to figure out who this guy is. He's just a little horn. He's just a small person in the realm of things. And that you're totally victorious. So no matter what happens on this earth, no matter what even's happening in our lives, that we might be able to enjoy your hope, your peace, your joy, because your eyes are set on you. Just guide us so that we might be able to accomplish this or that actually you would be able to accomplish this in our lives for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. The final world dictator. The final world dictator is what we're going to be studying about today. Again, the Antichrist, the little horn, the lawless one. Revelation says the beast rising up out of the sea. Again, just to review, as we looked at Daniel, we've, we've seen that in Daniel 1 through 6, it's more historical, biographical. And with chapter 7, we move into the main body of prophecy. Last week, we looked at a number of kingdoms. We'll see those in a moment. And what Daniel has been given is a vision... Now, again, remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of an image that was many years before this. And now Daniel's been given a, 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 a dream, a vision of different beasts coming up out of the sea. Now, again, in the first verse of chapter 7, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, Belshazzar don't add a T, that, that would be Daniel's name, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. That, that's important because it sets the date when the vision was given. 
we know that by the time that they had the handwriting on the wall, which is the end of chapter 5, is actually 14 years later. With chapter 7, what you do is you go back 14 years. 14 years before Medo-Persia empire conquers Babylon. What that means is this. Daniel was given a vision, and he's been chewing on it for 14 years. See, by the time Medo-Persia uh, conquers um, Babylon, he's had a lot of time to think about this vision. So again, this vision happens between chapter 4 and chapter 5, because by the time you get to chapter 5, it's the end. So that's the setting of the vision. And then you have the details. Again, I saw in my vision by night, verse 2, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts, these would be earthly kingdoms. When he's talking about beasts here, he's talking about earthly kingdoms. By the way, when he wants to identify the beast as a person, he talks about him as like a man. He has voice. And then you can identify. That would be verse 8. But anyways, these four great beasts, this, these earthly kingdoms came up from the sea. When he says that, he's talking about <coughs> from the earth. In other words, they are Gentile. They're part of humanity. Humanity which is polluted and turbulent. Humanity which is wicked and ungodly. These kingdoms came up from the sea, each different from the other. And as, as we looked last week, and I'll just show you these things again. No cartoons, by the way. Just um, I don't know if you, can you do it. Or, um, all right, four beasts coming up out of the sea. So again, and, and these beasts each represent um, a kingdom. The lion would be the kingdom of Babylon. And then the bear, which has three ribs in its mouth, is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. By the way, with one, one, it says that one is higher than the other. And the reason that is because Persia actually became the stronger of the two, Medo-Persia. Med, the Medes started the kingdom. The Persians were actually the strength of it. And then you had the leopard with four wings, which represents Greece. Alexander the Great, and you remember that he had, it was lightning strike, and he, he literally conquered the world in a very few years, died at age 33. And then this unknown beast, by the way, very hard to draw, you can't draw it because it says, it, it's, it's like unrecognizable. But again, it had ten horns, and if you see it real small, how someone pictured it, one little horn in the middle, that's representing the Antichrist. Now if you go, again, uh, with Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, that ungodly king, he represented him uh, the way he saw it was a golden head, the silver and chest and arms, the bronze belly and thighs, the legs of iron. By the way, right there is where that's in the past. And when it comes to the feet of iron, that's still future. That's the revived Roman Empire. Those same uh, kingdoms are also represented. But here, instead of a statue, which mankind would look at their kingdom as glorious and brilliant, as tremendous and will outlast, just like metals last. The way that God sees it through the godly Daniel is, these are beasts. Beasts need to be destroyed. Beasts need to be conquered. The winged lion, the lopsided bear, the four-headed leopard, the terrible beast, which again are those different countries 
different kingdoms. And we've shown you this before, but I want you to get it in your mind because what's really important is this end times right here. See, these are all history, but this is to come. This is the revived Roman Empire, the European Union most likely, although I'm not going to say for sure. But again, these beasts coming up out of the sea. Why? Because they're, that's picturing the Gentile, the earth. You got the bear, the lion, the bear, the leopard. Again, each coming up out of the sea. That's very, very important. What that tells you is this. Antichrist is not Jewish. He's Gentile. And then this beast, this little, you know, little horn with the ten, and he ultimately... And he's, un, you know, he's just terrible and destructive. And Oh, we, you can shut that off for a sec. Anyways, whereas man sees impressiveness with their kingdoms, God sees violence and murder and beasts that need to be slain. And ultimately, Jesus Christ, and like I read Daniel chapter 7, will slay the final beast, and he will be set up for his kingdom, as the last verse of verse 14 says, and his kingdom... Uh, will shall not pass away uh, the ki- his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed remember how we looked last week in each kingdom in each phase it was says it was given to him or dominion was given to him to them the idea was how did Babylon come to power it was given to them like you see this in chapter uh, 7 verse 4 of the end of it and, and a man's heart was given to it that's about Nebuchadnezzar But the point is, God gave. He's sovereign. Look at verse 5. It says, Arise, devour much flesh. What is he saying? He's saying, It's been given to you to conquer. Arise, devour much flesh. That's where Persia and Mede Persians take over Babylon. Same thing in verse 6. And dominion was given to it. So Greece took over Medo-Persia. And then same thing with uh, verse 7. Uh, talks about the dominion. I can't identify it at the moment. But the point is, uh, dominion was given with each stage, and that's why the word is used in verse 14, and uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Why? Because uh, verse 14, he was given dominion. This is all the plan of God, all the plan of God the Father, the ancient of days, as uh, verses uh, 9 and 10 talk about. So, we get to the final beast, it's Rome, but then Rome dissolves. After a thousand years, actually, uh, what was it, 1400s, when it was actually finally dissolved. And now there's kind of like this, times of the Gentiles, but uh, Jerusalem is being ruled by the Gentiles, but there's no world kingdom from those kingdoms. But there's arising another one, and you see that in the second part of verse 7. You see the transition in chapter 7, verse 7. Behold, the fourth beast, Rome, Rome, i.e. dreadful and terrible exceedingly strong and man if, if you know anything about rome they were exceedingly strong just like iron tanks of that day just trampling and destroying and devouring and breaking in pieces okay but look at verse seven uh second part it was different from all the other beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns now that's the different part Rome was never set up with 10 different districts. That's where we get into the future. By the way, if you could turn that on one more time. I should have just left it on. Yeah, just turn, yeah. That last, that last, uh, 
Uh, next one. There it goes. Yeah, right here. See, this is what we're looking at. Daniel 7, verse, uh, verse, chapter 7, uh, verse 7a. And then there's this long period of time. By the time you get to the ten horns, and it's like a person looking at two mountains with this big valley, for us this big valley of time. And all of a sudden we realize that there's been thousands of years between the Roman Empire and what will be the revived Roman Empire. And if you say, well, how do you get it off from there? Well, you get it from there in Second Thessalonians and Matthew 24 and Romans, or Revelation chapter, well, Revelation uh, 4 through uh, 20. But the idea is this, there's been a, you know, Rome ended, and now there's this church age, there's this time frame, the times of the Gentiles is still happening, i.e., Jerusalem, Israel has never been a totally sovereign nation, and the land completely theirs. Right now, you see all this conflict in Palestinians, it's still, we're still in the times of the Gentiles, but there's coming a day, Jesus Christ comes back, Well, that's actually referring to a couple of things, that the revived Roman Empire, the Antichrist, and then Christ comes back, and then ultimately Israel and Jerusalem will be totally under his control, therefore under Jewish control, for the first time since, uh, really, Solomon, you know, and and the kings back then. Now you can, thank you, Brooke. Brooke is so good. She's very patient with me, you know, I like, by the way, I like total power. You like that with a guy, you know, give me the, Give me the, the, the remote control. Okay. Now, the nations were established by God. Isaiah 49, 46, verse 9 says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. By the way, that's what this all is all about. <laughs> if you really want to know, Daniel is not about Daniel. It's about God's sovereignty. And it's God's sovereignty saying this. Listen, I will do what I have determined to do. If Jesus Christ does not sit on the throne of David, if he does not rule in a millennial kingdom, then please do not try to tell me that God is sovereign because that was what was planned. It's that simple. Either he does or God isn't, right? My counsel shall stand... Verse 11, indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Now, do you see intensity there? (laughs) God will deal, do what he has determined to do. And in fulfilling prophecy, what do we get? We get a great understanding and confidence in not only uh, Scripture, but the God of the Scripture. And we see the God of the Scripture, again, in chapter 7, verse 9, the ancients of days, that's God the Father. If you go to verse 13, the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ. So we have the judge and the conquering judge. By the way, I call Christ the conquering judge because in John 5, it says that the Father does not judge but gives all judgment to the Son. And the idea is this, the Father is controlling all things but then gives the judgment to the Son. He's the, Jesus is the one that opens the scroll, Revelation 6. He's the one that breaks the seals. He's the one that creates uh, uh, judgment on the earth. It's coming through Jesus Christ. He's the lamb, but he's also the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, I say all that to say, now we have to study the ungodly guy, (laughs) the Antichrist. And that's the first part of your outline. When will Antichrist appear? Before we even get into this text, 
which again, we see the first evidence of Antichrist in chapter or verse 8 when it says, and I was considering the horns, those being the ten, and there was another horn, a little one. That's the first time we, the scriptures mentioned Antichrist. He's called the little horn. In fact, a lot of times you'll hear it, the little horn of Daniel. That's Antichrist. But I want to set the context, okay? See, I've had people even say it this way, oh, you've got to get saved because Antichrist might come on the scene. No, no, you want to get saved because you are under the wrath of God until you put your faith and trust in Christ's sacrifice. And if you were to die today without receiving Jesus Christ, it's not that the Antichrist is going to get you, you're going to be sent to hell. <laughs> so again, we need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because we are sinners. And we are under the wrath of God because of that sin, because God is holy and just, and someone pays for each one of our sins. Either Christ did on the cross, or that person who has never received Christ will under the judgment and wrath of God, which we call hell. So again, it's not about knowing about Antichrist because, oh, he may get us. In fact, let me put you the context. So when will Antichrist, the key word is this, appear? Regarding the end times, the next event on the prophetic calendar, and if you came to the Jimmy DeYoung series, you know what? What's the next big event on the, on the prophetic calendar? It is called the rapture. The rapture. The rapture of the church. Now again, rapture means caught up. And scriptures teach that Jesus will return in the clouds and those who have died in Christ will be raised in that their resurrected body will be united with their souls. And I want you to remember that. Absent from the body, what? If I drop dead today because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, my sins have been forgiven based on his sacrifice on the cross, instant heaven, I'm in heaven. But the one part that is not going to follow me is this, the body. You're going to have a morning service. Hopefully some of you will come. And <laughs> you'll help my wife out to find a new man. <laughs> she tells me she won't, but I would encourage her to. Why am I saying this? Because I'm going to India and I'm... <laughs> No. <laughs> so, point is, is I'm not there. All I really hope is, and I, I mean this because I'm a sinner saved by grace, I just want to finish strong. That's all that really matters to me. Sometimes I don't live my life like that, unfortunately. You know, I allow certain things, thoughts, whatever, in my life. But the thing is, you want to finish strong, right? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Your body's there. You're gone. You meet him. But there comes a day when body and soul will be united. It's at the rapture. When you see him, see him face to face, uh, if he comes back, or, I mean, it, uh, First Thessalonians talks about those who are still living. They'll be uh, glorified. Those who have already died, they will also be glorified. Glorified being as far as the body. 
So again, believers at that time will literally be taken from the earth. This is the rapture to meet Christ in the air, receiving a resurrected body on the spot. It won't happen until then. It's not like those who die before those that are on the earth get it beforehand. It's all everyone gets the resurrected body that are in Christ at the same time. So believers will be removed from the world. Now think about this. Think about this. Think about that. Think about a million, two million, ten million, fifty million, all of a sudden godly people being removed from this earth. Which immediately within days, the way scripture sounds is within days will trigger the tribulation. So you go from rapture, glorified body. I believe that's when uh, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. We're in heaven. That's where the Bema seat. I believe the Bema and the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is when the Christians uh, in Christ and I believe Old Testament saints are up there. We get our reward. By the way, there are still people to be saved. But I believe that the, those two things happen during this tribulation period. We're up there enjoying reward there's people down here that, are, that the earth will be judged. So that triggers the seven-year period. So again, what's the purpose of the tribulation? I think I put this in your outline. To prepare Israel to receive her Messiah, Jesus Christ. See, to this day, Israel is still apostate. They don't recognize Christ as Savior. This period of time will get their eyes on Jesus. That's part of the 144,000, the two witnesses. There will be people getting saved during the tribulation period. Now, some question, if you've heard the gospel before the rapture, can you get saved? I'm not going to deal with that one yet. But the point is, there are a lot of people getting saved, perhaps they've never heard, during the tribulation. But the second reason for the tribulation period is to pour out the wrath of God on this earth. Uh, the wrath of Christ on this earth. He's the judge, remember. He's the one that breaks the seals. So Israel needs to come to her Messiah, but this earth needs to be judged because of the wickedness that they have done against God year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And again, God is forbearing. Uh, Romans 2 says that. Very forbearing, very patient. You know, we sometimes think, do sin, get chastised. No, God is patient. God is patient with this earth, but there's a come a day when the patience is done. The end of the times of the Gentiles, that's when it happens. So when true believers in Jesus Christ are removed, and at that very moment, uh, Thessalonian tells us that the Holy Spirit is, let's say it this way, his influence on this earth is removed. The Holy Spirit is omniscient and omnipresent. So it's, he's here, but his influence has been removed. Now think about that. The Holy Spirit's influence is removed from this earth, and the people who represent God and have been the shining lights on the, uh, for this earth are being removed. You know how black and dark this is? You know how wicked? And when man is going to be literally, part of the judgment is this, man will be literally allowed to do his own will. Nothing stopping, nothing holding back, no common grace. The Bible describes the earth, again, will be dis, uh, judged by Christ. War, famine, death. It talks about a quarter, Revelation, a quarter of the people just in the first round are killed. Now think about that, a quarter. 
we have what, seven point some billion people. So what if all of a sudden 1.33 billion people die in just the first round of the tribulation judgment? You've got corpses and blood and flies and maggots and wild animals eating bodies all over the place. It's just a time of absolute chaos. But what happens when that happens? Well, people cry out. During times of crises, people cry out for leadership. People are looking for someone to save them. They're going to be looking for that political and economical, economic, and also actually religious leader. And you know what? There's going to be that person that stands in the gap, Antichrist. The man that actually our adversary, the devil, Satan himself, has been grooming. He is going to step in the gap. By the way, did you just see the sequence I just gave? We're removed. Tribulation begins. Antichrist appears. By the way, let me say this. That does not mean that we will not go through great suffering and great tribulation before that point. I'm just saying that is not the tribulation that the scripture talks about. I do believe, I believe this, that America has shook its fist against God and God will judge America. And we're not going to be the one nation exempt until the tribulation. I do believe that the tribulation is imminent, but I also believe that God judges. And, and who better to have here during that first phase, maybe, of judgment than believers? So, you know, I don't, want, I don't like thinking this way. Oh, and God is going to rescue me from any suffering. Really? When has he ever done that in all of history? It's been the Christians that have been the, the, the dregs of society. It's been the Christians who have, you know, had the wrath of the world. But, but finally, we're gone, rapture, tribulation, and that's unprecedented. I mean, if you wake up tomorrow and you find out 1.33 billion people are dead, you know, that's unprecedented. By the way, the corridor is found literally right in Revelation. Just look up chapter 6. It talks about a quarter of the population. I'm not making that up. Um, so, he steps in. By the way, this masterpiece of Satan called Antichrist. You know, I mean, does he look like the hunchback of Notre Dame? <laughs> no. I mean, he is ugly in the sense of his soul. He is cruel. He is wicked. But he's going to come as the rescuer, the provider, the savior. That's how he comes. He is going to be a superb leader. He's going to be very attractive. We're going to see all this in a moment. He is going to be so charismatic, and there's going to be such chaos that people just flock to him. And on top of all that, he is able to pull off something that has never happened before. It talks about the first seven years, the first part of the seven years, the first three and a half. It says in Daniel that he will confirm the covenant. In other words, there will be peace in Israel for the first time. The warring nations with Israel will come to a peace accord. Dan, or, uh, Jimmy DeYoung thinks it's going to be one of the existing peace accords that never been held to, like the Oslo or whatever, who knows. But it does say the word confirm as though it's already there on the table, but nobody wanted to come up to the plate. But all of a sudden, now there's chaos, there's this new leader, and, and they both... Both factions, Israel 
and uh, their warring neighbors, and there's peace in the land of Israel for the first time, but it only lasts for about three and a half years. Because Second Thessalonian talks about that he breaks it, breaks the peace deal. So the other important thing about the tribulation, I know I'm going through, but I want you to get the context because I don't want you to be looking for the Antichrist here. I don't think, he's not gonna, you're not going to know who he is. I believe he probably is living right now. I believe he's living. I believe we're at the end. Just, I mean, everything else, it's all the other things that are happening. But maybe not. Maybe it'll be another 150 years. But the point is, is that he, is, he appears at the start of the tribulation, which is after we leave. So three and a half years, he doesn't show his, the first three and a half years, he doesn't show his true colors. It's the second half that he, we, that, uh, he breaks the covenant. And actually, Second Thessalonians uses this word, and he is revealed. Now, wait a second. I thought you said at the beginning. Yeah, because at the beginning, he came as a uh, peaceful leader. In fact, remember in Revelation chapter 6, and you don't have to turn it, but I want to read it. Because this is the Antichrist. In fact, many, I even listened to a pastor one time try to convince me that this was uh, uh, Christ himself. Because this is what it says. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow. Didn't have any arrows. Why? Well, this is Antichrist. You you know what it says? That's in Revelation 6. You know what it says in Revelation 19? Jesus Christ, the one that has written on his um, breast, uh, faithful and true, comes on what? A white horse see the the idea is he comes at the beginning as a leader of peace hope halfway through he is revealed and that's where the abomination of desolation happens that's where he wants worship to go to himself because satan and the ungodly want to have worship to themselves in fact, that's where the 666 comes in. To buy or sell, a person will have to worship the Antichrist. In other words, they'll have to have his name, or his number, excuse me, on the forehead, forehead, forehand, and be willing to worship him to buy and sell, to buy the necessities. Well, that gives you some idea. What do you mean buy and sell? Because this world will be in such chaotic mess just to even eat. It will be hard. And you will have to give total allegiance to Satan's man called the Antichrist. I say you, I mean the generic ungodly. By the way, it does say that those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life cannot receive the mark. In fact, I believe it's just impossible if you put your faith, if you, no, if the tribulation saints put their faith and trust in in, uh, God, in Christ, the tribulation saints put their trust in Christ, they cannot they cannot lose that salvation because it literally says that those, na- those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Book of Life, uh, could not receive the mark. So you have that, and then on top of that, you have the 144,000, and I've probably gone a little bit farther than I wanted, but I just want you to get the idea. He comes peacefully. He comes at the beginning of the tribulation. He changes from peace to war in the second half of that three and a half years. So everything that Daniel's seeing of this little horn, this is happening, but you may not be able to identify, we probably won't identify it here. It's not till we leave that things really start kicking into gear, but you do start seeing some things. The nations are coming together. They're starting to be like in the European Union. Now there's, what, 26, 27? But they're talking about, let's get this down to, you know, I think their number was literally 10. 
They're saying, listen, we got to forget about the sovereignty issue of nations because we're all in this together and we're all going down together and we got to stop these countries like Greece and Spain and Italy from spending all our money type of thing. We got to, do you see how everything's working together? So let's, let's look at uh, what is this antichrist like? First of all, he'll be cunning. He'll be cunning. He's called the little horn. Again, coming up out of the other beasts, out of the, the Roman Empire, the Babylonian, uh, excuse me, uh, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian. See, these empires literally got gobbled up by, all right, so you had Babylon, gobbled up by Medo-Persia, got gobbled up by Greece, got gobbled up by Rome. Ultimately, out of that nation, or that empire will come the revived. We just saw that. But then he comes out of that. That's why I think he's Gentile. In fact, I'm getting a book where the, the premise is not only that he's Gentile, but he's actually from Islam. I find that interesting. But it makes a lot of sense, quite honestly, because how can he broker peace with Israel? So, but you say, well, how is he cunning? David Jeremiah wrote this. If we read carefully and understand the prophetic symbol of the horns, we learn that from this verse, being verse 8, that the coming world leader subdues three other kings by plucking them out of their, by their roots. This man will squeeze out the old to make room for the new. He will take over three kingdoms, one by one, not by making war. Remember, he comes with on a white horse. But by clever political manipulation, he begins as a little horn, but then succeeds in uprooting three of the first horns and thus abrogates their power to himself. So he gets three, so now he's, he's in the power seat. Or as my dad used to say, he's, not, he's now in the catbird seat. I don't know why I brought that up. Okay. Daniel reiterated this, by the way, in Daniel 11, verse 21. It says this, He shall come in, peace, he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom, catch this, by intrigue. So he doesn't conquer three nations, it's through intrigue. The point is this, he's cunning. He's cunning. Number two, he's not only cunning, but he's charismatic. He's a charismatic leader. And you might say, well, how do you know this is even a man? Well, it actually says it. We're eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. We're talking about a man here. See, we have moved from beasts that were repre- uh, kingdoms that were represented as beasts. Now he's, you know, the beast. Actually, that's how he's re- re- referenced in uh, Revelation chapter 13. The beast coming up out of the sea. So again... He's articulate, speaking pompous words. When you say pompous, it's not just big, great, and that word is used, by the way, a number of times in this, in this passage, but hopeful words. Words that are pompous in the sense of follow me. I'm your hope. I'm your salvation. I'm your savior. Those are pompous words. Great promises. In fact, look at verse 20. Whose appearance was greater than his fellows. He looked great. You know, you kind of remember the, the um, King Saul. But the idea is you're just attracted to him. In fact, David Jeremiah ends by saying it this way. The combination of a magnetic personality, 
speaking ability, and extremely good looks make him virtually irresistible to the masses who are suffering. They're suffering. They want, man, give us, you know, give us that man that can lead, find some hope in. So he's cunning, he's charismatic. Third, he's caring. See, he's going to be presented as appealing, not repulsive. Now, we find that kind of strange, isn't it? Because in Scripture, he's referred to as the beast. Isn't that pretty repulsive to you? Uh, The lawless one. The Antichrist. I mean, you think of all that. Uh, James Boyce points out, I think, a very, very interesting thing about this word Antichrist. He says, the name Antichrist does not mean opposite of Christ, but rather instead of Christ. Now, by the way, that makes a whole lot of sense. See, he doesn't come in with a sword, blaspheming God at the beginning. He comes in on a white horse. He comes in offering peace. He comes in offering hope. He comes in as the instead of Christ. Oh, Jesus is coming And from this point here, it's going to be a very short years. But he's offering himself as the Savior. The replacement of. Again, it's a real interesting study to look at Romans, Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. Revelation 6, Antichrist. Revelation 19, Jesus Christ coming back. He tries to duplicate. Boyce says, quote, Antichrist will be a substitute for Christ. As much like Christ as as is possible for a tool of Satan. He will talk about justice. He will talk about love. He will talk about peace. He will talk about prosperity. He will be brilliant. He will be eloquent. In short, he will appear as an angel of light, just like Satan appears as an angel of light. And he will be handled by the millions flocking to him. He will just be, you know, overwhelmed. He'll be like the Superman. of economics, of political intrigue, of even religion. Everything will be pointed to him. See, he will be wanted because the masses will be hungry. They will be in desperate times. There will be chaos. They just need hope. By the way, that is why, not this, but let me give you a side. This is, this, let me, I'm walking over here because this is an aside. Okay, this is not connected to the message, but I want you to kind of hear this. We have a new ministry at Alfred Almond. It's called the Hope Ministry. And that is where a number of counselors are wanting to help people solve their um, personal and, and uh, problems. Why? To give them hope so that they might honor and glorify Jesus Christ. By the way, do you know what hope means? It's an acrostic for what? Can someone tell me? Even someone that's one of the counselors because I'm not sure if I have it exactly right. No, (laughs) helping? Excellent. Actually, I didn't know that. I looked it up before I came, so I knew it. No, helping others progress effectively. You ever find yourself, the best way I ever think of it is this way. You're in the stream of life. You're in the stream of Christianity. You're going along good, but all of a sudden you get like in an eddy. You ever been on a stream in an eddy? An eddy is where the water doesn't keep moving. It's kind of off to the side and it just kind of swirls. When we used to do rafting, uh, once in a while, if you go around the curve wrong, you get caught in an eddy and you just kind of spin around and around. It's really frustrating. Come on, get me back into the river without touching the river. Um, 
That's what counseling, that's what we mean by progressing effectively. Sometimes we, we get stalled in our Christian walk. Maybe it's worry, maybe it's fear, anxiety, maybe it's lust, maybe it's financial, relational, whatever it is. Something is, maybe it's just understanding Jesus better. How does this fit? How does this practical? I need help. I got to get out of the eddy. You might be a true Christian, but you're in that eddy. If you are, I would encourage you, either get on the website, see me, Phyllis, Mary, Charlie. We want to help you get out of the eddy. We want, we want to, helping others progress effectively. Keep moving on. Keep moving on. See, counseling is not forever. We do not believe like you're going to get your own personal counselor for the next 25 years. What we're trying to do is give you biblical truth to get you back into the stream of life. Because God wants you to progress and then be a blessing to others. Now, I I took a little side trip because, you know what, when it comes to Christians, we have hope. We have Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, who is sovereign. He's given us the Spirit who is in us, who convicts us and guides us and leads us and teaches us. We have the Word of God that is, that is uh, sufficient for all that we need. And, and sometimes we still stay in the eddy. As it pertains to Christians, we have all kinds of hope. And we have each other. We're not alone. We're not islands. But here's a dark time in the world history where there's no hope. And they're now reaching out for anyone. Okay? And that's Antichrist. Let's get back to the message. You know, there was a prototype of Antichrist. Many thought he was the Antichrist. In fact, some even say to this day that he will be resurrected as the Antichrist. And that is this guy, Hitler. Remember Hitler? I just want to read a few excerpts. crazy guy with this weird mustache no but he could have literally ruled the world boy you ever if you ever really do research world war ii the geopolitical he came very close if it wasn't for a few key things such as churchill and some other key things he would have been the world dictator you know we kind of look back and say gee he was a joke and we got uh, you know we got together and we then crushed him no he came very very close but this is what was happening in germany Here's this man of charisma and oratory pomp. He says, the, one man said this, the German treasury after World War I was low in gold. The budget was unbalanced and inflation went out of sight. In 1919, a German mark was worth a quarter. One mark, one quarter. Within four years, it declined in value until four trillion marks were needed to equal the buying power of one dollar. In fact, I think it was uh, Stalin or one of the Russian guys said, if you want to uh, uh, destroy a nation, destroy its currency. That's what happened with Germany. The German middle class lost all of its savings and every pension was literally wiped out. The people were ready to listen to anyone who would help them solve their problems, their bitterness. Another guy said this, uh, Charles Colson in the Kingdom of Conf- uh, Kingdoms in Conflict said, This is how Hitler, yeah, good, you turned him off, great. (laughs) This is how Hitler, talk about oratory pomp, you know, like the Antichrist. He he represented this. This is how he would come into the arena. It was all well orchestrated, which everything Germany did seem to be. They were crowded halls as Hitler manipulated the German people. Quote, solemn symphonic music began to set up. The music then stopped, a hush prevailed, and a patriotic anthem began. 
From the back, walking slowly down the wide central aisle, strutted Hitler. Finally, the Fuhrer himself rises to speak, beginning in a low, velvet voice, which makes the audience unconsciously lean forward to hear. He speaks his love for Germany and the German people. And gradually his pitch increases until he reaches a screaming crescendo. But his audience does not think his rasping shouts excessive because they are screaming with him. I actually got on the, the uh, YouTube this last week and just watched it. He did that. He started real slow. And before long, da, 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 and there's this like, ah! and I'm looking around, all these grown men, and yeah! why? Because they were in the clutches of need. <laughs> he rose. By 1930s, late 1930s, early 1940s, when Hitler was moving through Europe and swallowing up whole nations, many believed that he was the coming Antichrist. Quote, Hitler offered himself as a Messiah, literally. In fact, we have pictures of him. Jesus was replaced by Hitler and Messiah. That was his divine mission to save Germany. On one occasion, he displayed the whip he often carried to demonstrate. And and he would say this, In driving out the Jews, I remind you myself of Jesus in the temple. He declared, quote, Just like Christ, I have a duty to my own people, end quote. He even boasted that just as Christ's birth had changed the calendar, so his victory over the Jews would be the beginning of a new age. He ended by saying this, What Christ began, I will complete. At the Nuremberg rallies, a giant photo of Hitler carried this caption, In the beginning was the Word. He thought himself to be Messiah. The Antichrist is referred to in chapter 9 as the Prince. Why do you think that is? Because again, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He's called the Prince. He's not only that, but he's a cultic leader. All who dwell on the earth will have to worship him. Revelation 13, verse 8. And, it, and what I was referring to, I, it, this is the verse. 13, 8. Whose na- all, right. all those who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose name have not been found written in the book of life of the Lamb. See, everyone that is not found written in the book of the Lamb will worship. Worship or don't eat. Worship or starve. So he's a charismatic leader. He looks like a caring leader. He's a cult leader in the sense he wants self-worship, worship of himself. People will flock to him. But finally, he is a cruel leader. Verse 21, I was watching. This is Daniel seven twenty-one. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. He's a cruel leader. He comes as a leader of peace. He ends as a cruel leader. In fact, go to verse 25. Because there's some intensive verbs there. He shall speak, that's intensive, pompous words against the Most High. He will blaspheme the Most High. Other passages say that. But notice this also. He shall persecute, that's intensive, which means wear out the saints of the Most High. Again, intensive means crush, complete annihilation. He wants to destroy them. Notice that. He goes from being their friend, and they sign a peace with all the other nations, to now going after these tribulation saints, to de- when I say tribulation saints, we're already gone, to destroy them. 
Not only that, but he, he look at this, and, and verse 25, and shall intend to change the times and the laws. I mean, he, he wants to see everything changed. Maybe even go from a seven to ten day work week or whatever. So this, he's a cruel leader. I mean, he's, he's referred to in Daniel 8 as the fierce king. Daniel 11 as the vile person. Zechariah talks about him as the worthless shepherd. I mean, you just see it over and over again. He hates God. He hates his people. He wants to destroy them. He wants to destroy their testimony. He wants to destroy their effectiveness. And this is where we close with the Antichrist. I don't want to go too much farther. Not that he's depressing. He's just so vile. Don't you want to end on a good note? Where should we go from here? See, because I don't want to just end with Antichrist. Okay, now I just told you he's cruel. You know, he's supposedly caring, but he's not. Let's, let, let me give you three applications. How should this affect your life? Number one, be sure that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, right? Walking with Jesus Christ. See, Christ will protect us. But when I say this, I mean, Corinthians says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. The simple reality is this. In fact, let me just read it for you. In John chapter 3, verse 36, it talks about those who will believe on Jesus Christ and those who do not believe on Jesus Christ. It says this. He who believes in the Son, what? Has everlasting life. He who has believed on the Son, he who has put their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he whose sins are forgiven because he has put his faith and trust in the sacrifice of Christ, has eternal life. Eternal life. Therefore, no matter what happens on this earth, suffering, tribulation, trials, we are safe in God because ultimately we have eternal life. And we have the Spirit of God and abundant life. And even in the midst of trials, do you ever go through trials and still experience that abundant life? We're protected. But in the second part of the verse says this, And he who does not believe the Son, rejects the Son, rejects his sacrifice, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. Unfortunately, people have the wrath of God abiding on them. And they go like this, well, I don't feel it. Again, we're talking in the spiritual sense. The wrath is over them, and at the point that they die, they will be judged. And ultimately, Revelation, all those whose names are not written in the book of life shall be cast alive in the lake of fire. They'll be cast in the lake of fire. So I think the first thing we have to do is this. Be sure that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you come to the point in your life where you recognize yourself to be under the judgment of God because he is holy and you are a sinner and you looked to the cross and, and saw through scripture that Jesus Christ, the son of God, God man, came to die for my sins. And you put a, your personal faith and trust in Christ's sacrifice to forgive you and to make you part of his family. If you haven't, you can cry out to him right now. You can literally just, Lord, I recognize myself to be a sinner. I recognize that you are the only Savior, and I'm putting my whole hope and faith and trust in you. That's the first. Number two, be prepared each day for the spiritual battles that you will face. We want to be prepared, because even though the Antichrist is not here on this earth at the moment, this is what 2 John says. 
Very, very instructive. See, because we think, well, okay, we're, we're at least not going through that right now. But he says there are many, 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Many, right now. Many, many deceivers who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and an antichrist. Not the antichrist, but there are a lot of antichrists. There's a lot of antichrists right now. Not the antichrist, but people who present that Jesus Christ, God, God's son, the God-man, did not come in the flesh. His incarnation. They've worked against his incarnation. And therefore, if he didn't come in the flesh, he certainly could not die for mankind because he's something different. See, that's what he means by him not come in the flesh. People are trying to uh, teach heresy, deception, so that people will not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What does that tell us? We need to be prepared each day. We're in a spiritual battle. We're in the war. What did uh, Peter say? Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the lion, what, walks about, what, seeking, what, whom he may devour. And Satan has many of his people out and about and demons and all the different, it's a spiritual battle. We need to be soldiers. That's the point. See, when you read about Antichrist, you're not going to be there when he comes on the scene if you're a believer. You'll be raptured. But you know what? We still need to be vigilant right now. There's all these heresies, all these false truths that are out there. And finally, and the, I think one of the most important of all is this. Always remember that Jesus Christ will be victorious. Revelation chapter 19. We end here. We saw, him, we saw the Antichrist come on a white horse. Let's look at the real king. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war against Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, the nations. His eyes were like a flame of fire on his, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. By the way, that's you. White and clean, follow them on the white horse. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. By the way, you're not fighting the war. He's going to do it all. And he shall strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath almighty. And he has on his robe and is on his thigh a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. The beast gets destroyed. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and, the army, and their armies gathered to make war against him. That's the Antichrist who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him and sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's called the supper of the great God. Hey, in all this study, in all Daniel, just remember that it's Jesus Christ that is victorious. If you're, if you're a Christian, you're on the winning side. And we don't know what's going to happen, but just remember, you're on the winning side. I don't know what trials you're going to have, what frustration and suffering you're going to have, you're on the winning side if you're in Christ, right? I think sometimes we get too focused on who's the Antichrist. 
He's just a vile, wicked man that only is going to last for three and a half or seven years, but then totally destroyed by the one coming on the, on the white horse. And like I said, we come with him, but when it's all said and done, he does all the fighting because it's all his power. It's all for his majesty and it's for all his glory. So he wins the entire battle in and of himself, right? Man, don't you just say, come Lord Jesus. Oh, I can't wait. Anyways, let's stand and worship him. My closing prayer today is just going to be out of Revelation. So if you'd bow your head, and it just says this in a few couple verses. Christ took the scroll, and they sang a new song, and the they is us, because we're in heaven worshiping the king, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on this earth. Amen.